Casey. Hi, Kayla. We're here. And you know what? What? Getting close to Valentine's Day. Ew. Or, mm, okay. <laughs> I feel the love. Not a fan, that's all. Not a fan? Eh. Maybe we should do an episode if there's like a dark history about Valentine's Day one day. Oh. Maybe next year. Maybe. Yeah. But I wanted to bring you a story about the most wholesome couple I've ever read. Oh Perfect for Valentine's Day. They're actually not. Um, my very first note that I wrote down, I think you would enjoy this. Um, their names are Myra, Henley, and Ian Brady, in case you're wondering. My very first note was, because you'll find out I don't like either one of them very quickly. I mean, they're murderers. I know, but they just... You know, some cases you read, and they just grind your gears more so than others. I get that. This one's that. Oh. Specifically Myra. We'll find out why. My first note says, Myra looks like an inflamed anal gland, and Ian looks like a yeast infection. I'm going to Google what they look like. Though. They actually don't physically look like that. But that's the vibe I get from them because they are just disgusting human beings. What's up with her hair? Guess how old she is in that picture. Is she not in her 40s? She's like 23. Girl, get that wig off. And he's like a couple years older than her. Okay, so he gives Edward Cullen. You know who he reminds me of? Who? And now I'm drawing a blank, but I love him. The actor. I didn't watch a lot of TV growing up, so I... I like how that was all I gave you. <laughs> the actor. The actor. <laughs> we talked about him for the Natalie Holloway case. Do you know exactly... I feel like we know. It's not back up from. No, he's old. Oh, Christopher Walken. Yes. He reminds me of a great value version of Christopher Walken. I love how we got here. <laughs> but I like Christopher Walken. I do not like Ian Brady. Don't get that confused. But if I had to describe, like, a younger version of him, that's the kind of look he looks like. Myra looks like Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec. <laughs> I feel like that's an insult. <laughs> I just strongly hate them. Especially Myra. So I just had to start off with a bang. Understood. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you know anything about this case? I do not. Okay, well, let's get into it. So, Ian Brady and Myra Henley were a serial killer couple located around Manchester, England. They targeted children and killed between July 1963 through October 1965. So only about two years all this shit show happened. Uh, Ian is known as being the most hated man in Britain, and Myra is the most hated woman. Even to this day, that's what they're known as. You can look at them and kind of tell. You can tell. They have a face that's easy to hate. If you're listening and you can Google this. Google. Google it. I'll, we'll post to our Instagram as well. We will do that. They're ugly. They're ugly. Ugly as sin. Um, But yeah, they earn those titles. So I'm going to talk about their victims first. Because you don't really get a lot of information about their victims. And they need a lot more recognition than those asshats. And then we'll get into the backstory. Okay. All right. So the first victim was Pauline Reed. She was born February 18th, 1947. And she was only 16 years old. 
Pauline lived with her parents, Amos and Joan, and brother Paul. Pauline was an apprentice baker. Sorry, was an apprentice baker who worked for her father, and she enjoyed pop music. Hmm. Just so you know. We need to know, you know, some personality about these people. From what year was it? Uh, they committed their crimes between 63 and 65, so early 60s. Yes. I'd like for you to listen to me, Casey. Thank you. I'm sorry, I was thinking about pop music and I was listening to Britney Spears. <laughs> I don't know if Britney Spears was born in the 60s. I don't think so. I don't know. Okay, so on July 12th, 1963, there was a dance at the British Railway Social Club that Pauline wanted to go to. She was very excited. She bought new white heels to wear and a new party dress. Her mom even did her hair. They made a whole day out of it for them to get ready, and she was very excited. Uh, her mother allowed her to walk to the dance alone, which was about one kilometer, which I looked up is about a little over half a mile. Okay. So like a 10-mile walk. Ten-minute walk. Sorry. Okay. We escalated very quickly. Um, so she left. She kissed her mom on the cheek, and she left about around 7.30 p.m. Uh, what her parents didn't know at the time was that Pauline never made it to the dance. Uh, when she wasn't home by midnight, her parents became worried, and they spent the whole night looking for her. They called police in the morning. Police conducted a search. They found absolutely nothing. Uh, her body was found 24 years later. Oh, my God. Uh, on June 30th, 1987. So, for 24 years. Britney Spears would have been born by then. Probably. Um, the second victim was 12-year-old John Kilbride, born May 15th, 1951. His parents were Sheila and Patrick, and he was the oldest child. John was known to be very sweet. He would sing a lot. He loved the movies. He loved soccer. He took care of his siblings, and he would even help out his sick grandma around the house. He was a sweet angel baby. He sounds like a sweet angel baby. Yes. On November 11th, 1963, he was 12 years old. He went to the movies with his friend. Um, he went to a marketplace after, and his friend left him. We'll get into more details later, but... That was the last time anybody saw him alive again. It's like, I know we live in a different time. But yeah. You should never leave your friends. No, like, he was literally, like, they were both 12 years old. And he's like, I gotta go catch a bus. Which, granted, he needed to get home. Yeah. And, like, 12-year-old kids could just, like, go wherever back then. That's true. It's so crazy to think about that. Completely different time. Even 20 years ago, completely different Oh, it's time. crazy. Um... So when John didn't show up for dinner, his parents called the police because John was never late. He was a sweet angel baby. Uh, police conducted a search. Thousands of people or thousands of volunteers showed up. No one could find anything. His mother even continued to set the table and included a plate for John in the hopes he would come home one day. Aww. Until she found out he was no longer with us. His body was found two years after he went missing in October of 1965. Six months after John's disappearance, another child went missing, 12-year-old Keith Bennett. He was born June 12, 1952. Keith was one of six kids. He lived with his mother, Winnie Johnson. I love the name Winnie. I do, too. I think, side note, one of the cutest names. I love it. Um, so every week on Tuesdays, he would go and stay the night with Grandma. Typically, Mom would walk with him. This night, she did not walk with him. So she just wa like watched him kind of go past the street for as long as she could, um, assuming he made it to Grandma's house. 
He never made it to Grandma's house. You know what they say about assuming. It makes an ass of you and me. Yeah. I know. Um, but back then, in the early 60s, people didn't have cell phones. So Grandma just assumed Keith is staying home tonight. Mom didn't know. He never. Mom didn't have a clue he'd ever made it to Grandma's. No one knew until the next day that he was missing. I hate that. I hate it so much. But they didn't know. And in the 60s, apparently everybody just trusted, just trusted everything. Yeah. I have no trust. Me <laughs> um, Keith has never been found. Which absolutely shatters my heart. If people could see my facial expression right now, I just... It's, it's so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> um, the fourth victim was 10-year-old Leslie Ann Downing. She was born March 17, 1954. She lived with her mother and stepfather, Anne and Alan, her th- and her three brothers. And her mother described her as being the perfect child that any mother would be proud of. Aww. Like, stab me in the heart, twist it. That's how I feel. Makes me wonder if they're, like, stalking these kids before they go for them. So they're good kids. Let's pick out the good kids. I know. Now, you'll find out later on they were very strict about who they picked out in the sense of like they had no connection to them okay. they were very meticulous which we'll get into later which is sickening um so on boxing day the day after christmas december 26 1964 leslie ann went missing leslie went to a local fair about 10 minutes away from home with a group of friends basically the group spent all their christmas money they didn't have any more money left so leslie stayed she wasn't ready to go home um and she, no one saw her after the fair. The kid, the, her friends left her, and she was there by herself. Um, so when her brothers came home, and she never came home, her mother instantly got worried. They called the police. They did a whole big search, again, like everyone else. Um, but there were no leads, nothing. Uh, her body was the first body that police found. And she was discovered October 16th, 1965. And that was almost a year after she went missing. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. This is the last victim. Thank God. <laughs> uh, so the last victim is a little different. He was 17 years old. And a boy. 17-year-old Edward Evans. Born January 1948. Edward lived with his parents, Edith and John, Ed- John Edward Evans, and his brother and sister. Edward was known to be tall and slim. He was very well-dressed. He liked the nightlife. He liked girls. He was a very typical 17-year-old boy. Makes sense. He liked going to the pubs, even though he was too young to drink. He could figure out ways to drink. Living his best 17-year-old life. Um, he was also, apprentice, also an apprentice engineer. So he was trying to work. He was doing good. He was just being a 17-year-old kid. So on October 6, 1965, he left home. And his mother reported that he left between 6 and 6.15 p.m., and that was the last time she ever saw him. Next morning, police received a phone call, and the person on the call claimed that they had witnessed the murder of Edward Evans, and they knew who killed him. Oh, gosh. I know. Plot twist. (gasps) That was so not planned! (laughs) So police went to the murder scene, and in the home, they found Myra Henley and Ian Brady. Police were completely unaware... That they were this hor- like just horrific homicidal com, oh my gosh, words. They were completely unaware of the horrific, just murderous couple, and they had no idea of all the murders they had committed. So 
They had no idea that any of these kids were related. They had no idea they did any of it. Wild. That is wild. Wild. Just... Like, if you could see our face right now. I mean, you can look at them and be like, they definitely murdered somebody. <laughs> well, I mean, they're messed up for sure. But, like, they weren't even on the radar for these kids. They must have been really good at what they did. Yeah, we'll get more into detail. But that was the victim list. I wanted to give them a little extra attention because they're kids. And it's been so long that a lot of their family has passed away at this point. Mm -hmm. So you just... Yeah. You just don't see a lot about them. So I just want to talk about them. Give them the recognition. Exactly. They were babies. All right. Let's get into the backstory. We'll start with Myra Henley, the anal gland herself. <laughs> Ew. Ew. <laughs> All right, so I'm just going to put it out there that there's a narrative that I don't agree with that basically says that Myra is innocent. I'm giving you a second to react because that's a statement that people have said. Yeah, I just have to look at her picture again. <laughs> So, basically, people think that she was just so abused and so manipulated by Ian that she just went along because she was a victim. And Which, we'll talk more, and you can come up with your own theories, but Myra has a lot of supporters. They need to get a life. Exactly. It's... Yeah. Yeah. I can't. All right. A little backstory of Miss Myra. Excuse me. So Myra Henley, she was born July 23rd, 1942 in a Manchester, UK suburb. Her parents were Bob Henley and Nellie Henley. I also love the name Nellie. I do love the name Nellie. I'm loving Winnie and Nellie. I feel like they'd be best friends. I feel like they would. I like it. Be like little rabbits and have a little cartoon. (gasps) I like it. They were very wholesome for this story, which is not fitting, but you know. You gotta find it where you can. Exactly. So Myra was the first child they had together, um, and she was born while her dad was in a parachute regiment during World War II. So he didn't get to see his daughter until she was three years old. Oh, okay. So during, like, those formative years, she did not have a, a dad. Right. So during those three years, her and her mom lived with her grandma, uh, who she called Gran. Gran plays a role in this throughout the whole thing, unfortunately. Gran did not know she played a role in it, though. Poor Gran. <laughs> she was very close to Gran. She respected Gran. We love Gran. Poor Gran. Um, so Bob came back from the army. Um, and he moved him, him, his wife, his daughter, into their own, own home. So they weren't seeing Gran as much. Um, he got a job. They ended up having another daughter named Maureen. From everything I could tell, Maureen and Myra were close. They were like best friends. No issues with their, with that stuff. Um, unfortunately, when Bob came back, he was different, like most soldiers. They usually are. Yes. Unfortunately, he became an alcoholic, and he started abusing his wife. Mm. He did not abuse his kids. Um, but what they would do, because apparently, because, you know, you drink at night, you get, that's when the fights would start. Mm -hmm. What they would do is they would send the kids off to Grand's. At night. Exactly. So he would send the kids off to Grand, but the rule was they had to be at home during the day, have dinner, play perfect family. But then at night they'd have to go away so he could beat the shit out of his wife. Oh. 
So it's like, I have mixed feelings because it was a different time period. We got to keep that in mind, yeah. I guess. And I'm glad he didn't beat the crap out of his kids. And I'm glad he, they didn't necessarily witness things. But they knew. They definitely knew. Like, I'm not justifying it, but I feel like there was at least a smidge of an effort. I mean... It's a small smidge. A for effort, I guess. A for effort. Small smidge. It sounds like Bob needed to get his shit together. Oh, Bob needed to get his shit together. We all know a Bob that needs to get his shit together. Not really. I don't know, Bob. (laughs) I don't even know what it is, Roberts. I do know a lot of Roberts. Um, so anyway, Bob taught his children that they need to stand up for themselves and fight back. Which isn't bad in itself. But Myra's a shit stain, and this did not help her. Kill her dad, because... Like... <laughs> no. Oh. She did not kill her dad. Um, but we'll see what happens. So when she was eight years old, she came home, and a boy kind of scratched her up. She was a little bloody. She came home in tears, and her dad told her, and I quote... Go and punch that boy, and if you don't, I'll leather you. Meaning that she, he was going to beat her with a belt if she did not stand up for herself. That's one way to do it, I guess. So Myra, Myra was like, well, shit, I'm having a crappy day. I got some blood on me. I don't want to get the crap beat out of me some more, so let me go find this boy and just p- beat the crap out of him. Which she did. Good for her. Which she did. She knocked him down, beat the shit out of him. Um, And later on, she said, which this was a little didn't like this too much later on she said i quote at eight years old i'd scored my first victory oh yeah like i love a girl ball standing up for herself i feel like myra did not take it that way we're not making our entire personality no so myra is learning violence at home from a young age she's seeing her abusive home life with her dad Dad is saying, if you aren't fighting, I'm going to beat you. Uh, and then she just gets praised for beating the crap out of somebody. A real UFC fighter in the making. <laughs> I don't know if she won any title belts. Um, so Myra, when she was young, she was known for being tough and aggressive. Big shocker. And a lot of people described her as being masculine. Because apparently she had a low husky voice. Which again, we're going to reference. Please go look at the pictures of Myra. Thank you. Uh, the kids made fun of her because of her nose, and they nicknamed her Square Arse. <laughs> you know, she does Squidward-like nose. Yeah. Well, she had she also had broad hips, so they called her Square Arse. And I have to remember this is Manchester, so they say Arse. Yeah. And that tickles me. I have to remember that insult. Mm-hmm. For yep. personal use. But surprisingly enough, Myra was known for being an excellent babysitter. And, uh, like, the whole neighborhood would let them let her watch their kid. Well, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Apparently, she did great. Oh. <clears throat> the early years. Maybe she didn't like some kid. Yeah. Yep. So, when she was 15, she became friends with a 13-year-old boy named Michael Higgins. And they were very close friends. N- nothing crazy. They were just really good friends. One day, Michael invited Myra to go swimming, but she had plans, didn't go swimming. Michael ended up drowning and dying that day. Oh, my God. Yeah. But she blamed herself because she said she was a really good swimmer, and she thought if she was there, she could have saved him. Uh, Michael's funeral was held in a Catholic church, which had a very long-lasting effect on Myra. Church became very, very important to Myra. Mm -hmm. Um, Her dad 
was a Roman Catholic, and the girls, her and her sister, were baptized within the church. Um, that was the agreement the family had. Uh, Myra did not do well in school. She didn't give two craps about school. And at 15, which was after her friend's death, she ended up dropping out of school, and she became very serious and devout in the Roman Catholic faith. Always a religious fanatic. I don't know. Well, we'll see what she does with it later on, but at this time period, it was very, very important to her. Like she said, she wasn't going to have sex. The whole nine yards. Like she was very set in her ways. But you know, she has her beliefs. That's fine. I mean, don't Catholics believe in waiting it out in purgatory for every bad thing that you've done? I don't know. I'm not Catholic. I'm not either. I know that purgatory is a thing, but I don't want to say the wrong thing about that. Yeah, I know Catholics believe in... I know there's a purgatory. I think it's like you stay there and, like, people have to, like, pray about, pray for you or something. Their prayers help you get out years off your time. But you would think, with her being... Oh, she's there for a while. You would think she'd be worried about staying in purgatory, and why would you murder a bunch of kids? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, we'll see what she thinks about her religion. Oh, no. Later on. Oh, no. Um, So she got her first job as a junior clerk at um, some electrical company. She just did admin, run errands, whatever. She was well-liked with her job, so much she happened to lose her paycheck. And all the girls in the office donated from their own pay to give money to her. Oh. Which was very nice. And Myra was like, hmm. Might lose my check again. How can I exploit this today? Yeah, so wouldn't you know it, Myra lost her check again. And all the girls were like, nah, you on your own. Mm. You need to keep track of your checks. So it just kind of shows, like, early on she's a little... A little sketch. A little sketch, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so Myra started dating a boy named Ronnie Sinclair, and by the time they were 17, she was engaged. Um, as the wedding got closer, she was basically having a crisis of, like, crap, I'm gonna get married, have babies, have a small house. Basically do what everyone else in the town did, and Myra was like, I'm too good for that. I want an adventure. I want... Is she too good for that, though? Myra wishes she could have that. I don't know. She's not good enough for that. (laughs) But anyway, she was like, you know, Ronnie's too immature. Ronnie did nothing wrong. She just decided he was too boring. Kicked him to the curb. I'm sorry, Ronnie. So she wanted something more exciting. She filled out applications for the Navy and the Army. Never sent them. She considered being a nanny in America, but never went. So she had a lot of ambition for adventure. It sounds like she might have had ADHD, where you start a task and just don't finish it. Myra's not good enough for ADHD. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um, During this time period, I also found out she was taking judo lessons. Judo lessons? But no one wanted to be her partner. I wouldn't want to. Because she wouldn't loosen her grip when they would tap out, and she would just keep holding them. Oh. Myra. Myra, honey. That's the rules. Oh. In 1961, she's 18 years old, she gets a job at Millward's Merchandising, which was some manufacturer, whatever, we don't care. Um, On her first day on the job, she met 23-year-old Ian Brady. So, is it? In this case? Is it like a Bob? We don't know a Bob. I 
I don't know Ian. I mean, I do know Ian, and I do not like him. I don't know an Ian. I have no opinion. He's got a weird mustache. This is a shorter, but he doesn't believe me. <laughs> I hope you hear this, Ian. <laughs> I hope that your mustache shortness vibe is going well. I hope you're unhappy. I don't know you, Ian, so I don't know which one fits you better. <laughs> Um, so Ian had been working at the company for two years. He was some clerk. Myra was instantly in love. Like, love at first sight. Ooh, like, narcissism love. Yes. Ooh. Like, she thought he was so handsome. He had, like, dark hair, blue eyes. She was very impressed. Like, he took care of himself. He dressed well. And he had, like, that bad boy vibe. Like, he rode a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is what I think. I'm saying this is what Myra thought. Understood. I'm just sitting here looking at... I can see you're looking at his picture and you're like, Kayla, sweetie. Kayla. I can understand stop. why she would get the vibe wrong. Yeah. But he was just like totally in this bad boy vibe and she's like, oh my gosh, adventure. Ian, you're so hot. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so she kept a diary and she wrote all about Ian. Like, instantly, first day she met him. Yeah, so she wrote about him, and she's like, I hope Ian, this is a quote, by the way, I hope Ian and I love each other all of our lives and get married and are happily ever after. Girl, it's been one day. She also wrote later on that he was cruel and selfish, but she still loved him. Girl, he's so therapy. I know! Um, so Ian was a big reader during his lunch breaks he would read his favorite was nazi propaganda oh that's a red flag yeah so uh myra would also start reading books that she thought ian would care like care about just so he would ask her about the books just so they would talk to her because ian didn't give her the time of day he didn't pick me girl yes like he did not give two shits about myra he she was just like the secretary over there yeah. We'll get... I'm so shaking my head. She's just shaking. <laughs> so, they first spoke on July 27th, 1961, because it was in her diary. That's how we know the date. I've never been so obsessed. I've never. A diary entry about anybody I've ever I don't think about. I did. If I did, I'm ashamed. <laughs> um, so, over the next few months, she just kept writing in her diary about this intensifying infatuation she had. It just kept getting more... And more intense. So, December 22nd, at a Christmas office party, Ian finally asked her to go on a date and see a movie. And you know Myra was just, like, sliding out of her seat when that happened. She hopped right on that, like, a hobo on a ham sandwich. (laughs) She did. Um, So, Myra started changing her appearance in ways that she thought Ian would approve of. Now, remember, Ian, Ian loves some Nazis. Is this where the blonde hair comes? Yes. Okay. She wanted this more, like, quote-unquote, like, Germanic, like, Aryan Anglo type of look. So, like... She's got a very square jaw. Yeah. So, So like, she, she, like, originally had very mousy brown hair. She just, like, bleached it to, like, this hideous peroxide blonde. I I hope it all fell out. Um, She wore, like, bright red lipstick. She dressed more provocative, like, short skirts with boots. Anything to get Ian's attention because show a little ankle, show a little, show a little knee, and Ian honestly couldn't care less. <laughs> Ian's 
knew what he was about. Ian knew. He's like, that's a fake German look right there. She was doing her best, I guess. Yeah, so Ian was very antisocial. Myra started acting the same way. Uh, Myra was just obsessed with Ian, and whatever Ian said or did, that's what she did, and that's what she believed. So she was quoted as saying, as within months he had me convinced that there was no God at all, which remember her religion's very important to her. He could have told me that the earth was flat, the moon was made of green cheese, and the sun rose from the west. I would have believed him, such was his power of persuasion. Was it his power of persuasion, or were you just horny? I mean, he had a motorcycle. I mean... Um, but she also knew that Ian was pretty messed up because someone, she told someone that if she was ever killed or went missing, Ian would probably be the one that needed to be questioned. Oh. I forget where I found it, but it, I've read that in an article somewhere that she said that to someone. Why would you, you know what? Adventure. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so who's Ian Brady? Who is Ian Brady? Why did he have this effect? <laughs> So, Ian Brady was born January 2nd, 1938. Um, in Gorbals, I'm hoping that I, say that I said that right, which, knowing me, I probably did not. That was one of the roughest slums in Glasgow, Scotland. So, he did not have a very good start. Um, he was born to a young single mother named Peggy Stew. Sorry, Peggy Stewart. Peggy never said who Ian's father was. She told Ian that he was a journalist for some newspaper, and he died before Ian was born. Just like Anakin Skywalker. Exactly like Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> so Peggy always addressed herself as Mrs. Stewart, even though she wasn't married, just because being a, like young and single and unmarried during that time, it just put her in, in a not-so-good spot. So she always said she was married, basically. And she was a waitress at some tea room in a hotel. Just to make ends meet. But being a single mother was hard. She didn't have any help. She had to work. But because she had to work, uh, she didn't have any extra money really laying around. So she would just leave the baby, baby Ian, at home alone while she worked. Because she didn't have money to pay anyone and she didn't have help. And she was just trying her best. This was... Yeah. This was also like the... Or 1938... So I'm going to go with don't do that now. Don't, don't ever do that. But back then, you could probably get away with it. Unfortunately. But don't do that. So Peggy realized, like, hey, she can't really take care of a baby. She's trying her best, but she's just not working out. Um, so she put an ad in the paper for a permanent babysitter. A.K.A. an open adoption. Hmm. So she basically wants somebody to take care of Ian that better than what she could, but she wanted to be a part of his life. Like, she didn't want to get rid of him. She was trying her best. She just needed help. Uh, so Mary and John Sloan answered the advertisement. The Sloans seemed... The Sloans, they just seemed like good people. They had four of their own kids. Just a normal family. But they wanted to bring Ian in. He was four months old at the time. So it worked out. Peggy signed over all of her welfare checks to go over, kind of like as a... Um, like a kind of deal. Kinda like um, child support. Child support. Yeah, kind of like that. Like she was giving that over to them. That way they could help pay for Ian, okay. as opposed to pocketing the welfare money that she would have got for him. We stand Peggy. We Peggy really tried. 
Oh no, poor Peggy. Um, so she always visited every Sunday. She brought him gifts. They'd hang out, but she never called herself mom. I don't think she wanted to confuse him. So she was like Auntie Fun Peggy or something. Well, she was trying. She was trying. But then his adoptive mother, Mary, she was either called Auntie or Ma. So she wasn't really mom either. Mm. So it's like he's like, I don't really fit in with my own family. I don't fit in with this adopted family. There was a lot of gray area. And it seemed like that didn't go very well with Ian. Like, he had a hard time figuring out where he fit in. That's fair. I mean, you have somebody who's your mom who doesn't want to be called mom and somebody who's not your mom who also doesn't really want to be called Mm -hmm. mom. I don't think either one of them wanted to, like, confuse, but as a result ended up very much confusing. Yeah. I don't think it was meant to. (laughs) But it happened. So as Ian got older, Peggy stopped visiting less and less, and when she was 12, the visit just stopped altogether because she got married to her new husband, Patrick Brady, which is how he got the last name Brady. Mm-hmm. Um, so they moved to Manchester, um, just kind of stopped talking, basically, at that point. Imagine abandoning your child for a man. Can't relate. Can't relate. Nope, don't want to relate. No, absolutely not. Mm-mm. A no man worth it no 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 so the sloans treated Eden, ian like their own they gave him a loving environment they took care of him but despite their best efforts he had just no interest in it during his childhood he was very lonely he was difficult he was angry he would throw a lot of temper tantrums he'd bang his head against the floor oh my god he was just challenging child all the way around um, according to teachers, he was smart and bright. He just didn't give a shit enough to try in school. Some kids are like that. Yeah, but it did not work out for Ian. Other kids, I'm sure, are fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the kids thought that he was different. Can't imagine why they'd say that. He was secretive, and he was an outsider. He couldn't care less about sports, which during this time period, like the 40s, didn't go over well because boys play sports. So the other boys called him a sissy. Oh. Because, you know, that was the time period back then. Yeah, if you're not about that, what was this? They would have been about rugby. <laughs> rugby? You're not living that rugby life. Or, you're um, living. football. But not American football. Soccer? Soccer. <laughs> but they call it football. It is football. Is it hmm. football? It is football. It is. Yeah. I think we're the only ones that call it soccer. I think so. Mm. Americans are American. Unique. So, the family remembers a time when Ian was around nine years old and they went to a place called Loch Lomond. I'm hoping I said that right as well. Um, The family spent the day picnicking and they took a nap and it was like a very wholesome day. It's just like out in nature having a family picnic. Uh, When they woke up, Ian was nowhere to be found. Oh, no. I kind of wish that he would have stayed that way. Who takes naps out in public? It was the 40s. It was the 40s. <laughs> um, so they finally found him, and he was basically standing over a hill, just like looking at this vast open land. Just vastness. And he stood there for over an hour. Um, he was very much used to like very overcrowded slums and cities, so this was like a whole new world of open land. And this just had a effect on him it must have been like looking at the ocean for the first time i think it was like he stood there for over an hour just staring at it at nine years old 
So had some kind of effect. So the family whistled for him to come back. He ignored them. He told them to go home. He wanted to stay there. This whole thing. He was feral now. He was feral. He was one with the wild. (laughs) Which obviously didn't happen. On the way home, he was very talkative with the family, which was a huge shock because he never talked to them. Like, he just stuck to himself. And he's, like, just talking about how great he felt seeing this huge, vast, open land. It was, like, limitless territory for him, and he was the only one. And it gave him, like, this very, like, superior king cop- complex. Like, this is my land. Oh, so it altered his brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. He, that was one of those moments for him. So, like, he had this moment of, like, oh, this is mine. I'm colonizing this shit. Oh. I'm a colonizer. I mean, it's the UK, so. It's the UK. <laughs> Checks out. I also saw mixed reports. Some said he was abusive to animals. Some said he loved animals. Okay. That's kind of hit or miss. There was one story where he had a family dog named Sheila. Uh, Sheila got old. She wasn't feeling very good. He left for the day, and when he left, she was on the couch. Mm-hmm. When he got back, Sheila was gone. What family was upset. Sheila went to the farm. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, he realized, like, everything dies upsetting mm-hmm. which for most kids it is it's a brief intermission for baby we left off at sheila <laughs> the dog sheila the dog yep um this was when he came to the realization that everyone dies he will die that whole thing that's, i feel like everyone has that moment at some point that's a deep realization to come to when you're like what nine years old he, yeah kid but, you know, to a lot of people, and I feel like kids, that's a lot of anxiety and stress. Yeah. Scary. Not for Ian. Ian was ready. Ian was like, you know, this is my moment of realization that nothing matters. I can do whatever I want. Oh. Because nothing matters. Okay, Ian. What an escalation. So, between this seeing this great open land and he thinks he's just like the king of the world and now he can do whatever he wants because what's the worst thing that's going to happen he's going to die one day i guess that's fair we don't like how ian twists things (laughs) we we don't like they're very normal things i feel like most people experience like they most people go hiking or see their dog die or have a dog die but most people don't come to the realization that you can do whatever you want it doesn't matter Oh, he got, like, this big superiority complex. He decided he didn't believe in religion anymore. He didn't believe in God. Because he, to him, is like a god. He is god he now. He is. We, we have a complex. Oh, Ian. Ian. Ian, Ian. It's always an Ian. Always an Ian. We've discovered this. <laughs> mm. So at 11, Ian was accepted to some fancy academy for a school, which was a school for kids with above average intelligence. Uh, but he never really met his potential because, as we talked about, he doesn't give a shit. So he went to this fancy school that his adoptive family sent him to. Didn't give a shit. Um, he was lazy. He didn't apply himself. Nothing interested him. Um, he started to act out and misbehave. He started smoking. He just gave up on school and started getting in trouble with the police. Uh, around this time, that was when he became very interested in World War II and especially Nazis. Ew. Yeah. Uh, All the books he read were about Nazis, and when he would play games with his friends, which as little boys, 
in this time period did they played war games yes uh and he was always a german german soldier aka he wanted to be a nazi but i guess he just told him german soldier to his friend so it didn't scare him but he wanted to be a nazi If you could see Casey's face. Imagine wanting to be a Nazi. But again, he's like a child, so he doesn't know any better. Yeah, but we have plenty of time to grow out of it. (laughs) That's true. So from 13 to 16, Ian was charged three times with housebreaking and burglary. On the third charge, the court decided not to give him a sentence on the condition that he moved to Manchester to live with his biological mother, Peggy. And stepfather. Poor Peggy. I know. I don't really know what the point of that was i guess just to get him out of the area probably i don't really know what else that could do um at that point he had not seen his mother in about four years and he had never met his stepfather patrick uh so he was already just not very social but moving and living with strangers in a place where he knew he knew no one and he had a very thick scottish accent and Mm -hmm. no one else had that so he got picked on he didn't have anyone Ian was not thriving during this time period. It doesn't sound like it, no. no. Uh, This was when he changed his last name to Brady in an attempt to feel like he belonged with this new family. Well, he's trying. So he tried. Um, He did not get along with his stepfather very well, but Patrick did find him a job at a local market. Uh, Because he was so bored, basically, and felt like he didn't belong, he turned to more reading. Uh, Sorry, Ian did. And he read books like Crime and Punishment, and he was also becoming very interested in very sadistic books. Like, just books, like, very heavy, that most kids aren't reading. Yeah. Twisted things. And it's just constant all the time. That's all he wanted to do. Oh. Like, he was just very much, like, he loved reading and all that stuff, but those were the things he wanted to read. He was not reading Twilight. He was not reading Twilight. No. No. So a year after living with his mom, he turned back to the life of petty crime. He left his market job and found another job where he was arrested for stealing the lead seals. Mm-hmm. don't know why the lead seals, but he stole them. Um, he expected to get away with it because he'd always gotten away with it before, even if he went to court. Just like slap on the wrist. A.K.A. living with your mom. <laughs> um, they decided no more. They sentenced him to two years in a borstal. Which, from what I can gather, is like their version of a juvie. Okay. Uh, There wasn't any availability there for three months, so he was sent to the Strangeways Prison in Manchester to wait it out until there was availability in the juvie. So he went to a legit prison to wait to go to juvie. Imagine waiting in an adult prison to go to child prison. Yeah, he went real quick. He had to, like, be a big dog. Like, he was learning, like, how things worked. He was, like... Learning real quick, he had to toughen up and hang with the big dogs. They might as well just have just left him left in the him. adult prison. Yeah. So he eventually moved into the Borstal, which in comparison was like freaking cakewalk. Yeah. The security was not nearly what it was at the other one, so he could take advantage of it. Um, so he started making his own alcohol. He started running gambling books. Not he was making hooch in the toilet. <laughs> Um, so he would get drunk, he fought a warden, which got his butt sent to a much harder juvie center. And while there, he learned about real criminal activities, and he learned that he could make a lot of money off being a criminal. Oh, no. Because he was around all these other people. 
He's learning the ins and outs. So he was so confident he could become a career criminal, he started to take courses in bookkeeping so he could just manage all this wealth that he was going to get illegally. Imagine the aspirations. I mean the dreams, really. (laughs) Um, So he was released November 1957. Uh, He was much more quiet and standoffish more so than even before, which, no shocker that Ian didn't want to talk to anybody because he's better than everyone. Obviously. So, he was unemployed for a while and eventually worked as a, basically a hard laborer for a few months, but then decided he could use his bookkeeping skills. So he got a better job at Millward's Merchandising. And there, you know, he kind of just waited it out. He was, you know, putting his criminal aspirations on hold because he was trying to build this perfect scheme in his head. Mm-hmm. Um, so there for a while, he's just working and living his life. No criminal activity that we know of. With a woman over his shoulder just Little swooning, did he know. swooning over him. <laughs> so his co-workers knew that he was silent. He was in his own world. He would read books during his lunch break. As we talked about, wholesome Nazi books. Wholesome. Um, he would talk to them. He wasn't necessarily mean or rude. He just didn't care. Short. Yeah. I don't think literally, though. How tall was How he? How tall was Ian? He looked tall and, like, like lanky. He was six foot zero inches. Okay, so we can say he's tall. He was tall. Now we know why Meyer liked him. Um, so, but, yeah, he just didn't care about anyone at work. He wasn't mean. He just didn't give a shit. That is until Myra Henley came to work as a new secretary. And surprise, he didn't give a shit about her either. Wow. Shocker. <laughs> so, like I said, she was basically a stalker. She loved him. She wrote about him in her diary. Thought he was the ultimate bad boy. Whatever. He was not interested. Couldn't give two shits about her for months. <laughs> Uh, she noticed he liked to read. She started to read his favorite books, which I gotta say, it sounds crazy, but it worked because he did ask her about the books. But I still kind of wish she took the hints and just left them alone. Oh, 100%. But to him, it was just like, oh, I'm asking about a book. That's fair. To Myra, it's like, oh my gosh. Next my soulmate's talking to me. The next step is a proposal. Obviously. <laughs> As one does. That's how it works. Um, so, like I said... Uh, he asked her to a Christmas party or sorry he asked her out at a Christmas party they went out and that was the first time they had kissed aww. Um, not all no. <laughs> Ian drew blood what? because he told Myra he liked very violent kissing so much that he wanted to make her bleed what kind of kissing is so violent you know I just what is violent kissing? I'm gonna, like, the only thing I can think of is, like, almost to the point of it's in, like, a comedy movie. You know what I mean? Like, teeth. Like, biting. Um. (laughs) Not attractive. No. No. Um, so the next day they went to a Christmas church service together because religion is very important to Myra, as we have talked. Um, after the service he peed on the church. That's cute. Yeah. Um... Did not like it. Uh, after that, they went back to Myra's house. They had sex by the fire, and according to Myra, she lost. That's how she lost her virginity, and it was very, very rough. Myra, my love, mm-hmm. please, 
Yeah. <laughs> so basically, whatever his ideas were, she went along with. Um, he told her that he was very much an atheist, so she stopped going to church. Uh, she had vowed to save herself for marriage. Apparently, that didn't work out. Yeah, we'll see how far she got with that. Apparently, watching him pee on the church just... It really did, did it, it for just her. Just did it for mm. her. She just slid right out of her seat that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, he tried. He was taking pornographic pictures of her where they were very violent. Very not great like pictures. Jeffrey Dahmer. I just want like, to take some pictures. Just take some pictures, man. <laughs> um, they started dating more frequently. In the next few weeks, he would play records for her of Hitler marching songs. Oh, I could tell your face went from one way to the other real quick because you're like, girl, I love records. I know. I'm like, I, see, I, I collect some records. With I know. This not was, Hitler I hope... marching songs. Uh, he also gave her his favorite books, which you can guess were. Was it Mein Kampf? Yeah. It I actually be. had that written, but I knew I would not. I would butcher the name of it. Oh. <laughs> I took it. But yeah, he had that. It would be Mein Kampf. I knew I would butcher the name of it. So I just took it out. That's fair. You do what you gotta do. Nazi book. That one book by about Nazis. about the Nazis mm-hmm. by the the main Nazi about mm-hmm. the Nazis. <laughs> yep. So he would randomly just stop by on his motorcycle with no warning. So she just stopped going out with friends, on the off chance that Ian would come to her house. He didn't ask her to do that. She just did. Mm. Like, honestly, he probably wouldn't get gave a shit if she wasn't there. Probably. <laughs> so, as time went on, he realized that she was eagerly doing whatever he wanted. Changed her look, changed her beliefs, everything. Um, so then, he decides to tell her that rape and murder were not wrong. They were, in fact, and I quote, the supreme pleasure. Oh. Myra went along with it. Myra would go along with it. No questions. Just was like, hey, you know, I've heard a thing or two from Ian, and that's right. He hasn't been wrong yet, I guess. (laughs) But has he been right? (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, They created their own little world, their own little bubble. They were superior to everyone. They called everyone maggots and bugs. Disco race. Yum. I did read this in one article, but I don't know if it's, like, legit or not. Yeah. Because uh, I only saw it once. Apparently, they would read articles uh, in newspapers, and if they saw anyone in the news that had hurt animals, they would hunt those people down and vandalize their property and sometimes hurt them. I mean, I can get behind that. See, I would if I didn't know how this ended. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but otherwise, yes. Um... So, Myra's parents meet Ian. Her dad loved him. Hmm. Mom, not so much. At least her mom had some common sense. Yeah. Well, remember, her dad was abusive. Oh, that's right. So, she, her mom saw a lot of negative traits that reminded her. Of her dad. Mm-hmm. Mm. And she did not want Myra to have that. And Myra was like, nah, ma, I'm good. Myra knew what she wanted. Myra knew. So, Myra and Ian start hanging out at the Saddleworth, Saddleworth Moors a lot. They'd picnic. They'd hike dates the whole thing um saddleworth moor is located in northwest england and basically it's just this huge vast just overwhelming open land it's massive 
That's where the Moore's murders come. Moore's murders. Okay. Exactly. It all comes together. It all comes together. I tried to figure out how big it was because everything just kept saying it was big. Apparently, it's 29.4 square miles. That means nothing to me. That's a lot. Um, So I converted converted that to acres Mm -hmm. via Google. So I don't know if that's right or not. But according to Google... It is 18,816 acres. That's a lot of acres. That makes more sense to me than oh. square miles. I don't, I don't know what a square mile is. Oh. It's a mile that's squared. Is it really? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a UK thing. Well, wouldn't it be a square kilometer? See, that's... I was confused. That's why square miles meant nothing to me, so I had to look up acreage. Regardless, it's massive. <laughs> There's, like, no civilization for miles. Nothing. Nothing. Just open land, basically. Um, so they would go for dates, and they would have, you know, conversations about their future, as couples do. Um, they talked about not wanting kids. They didn't want to get married. They didn't want to be weighed down. They just want to do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Which, if you have that mindset, there's nothing wrong with But Ian and Myra have bad intentions. Yes. (laughs) They were both bisexual um, and very open that they supposedly wanted and had an open relationship. I don't know if Myra wanted that. That's very much, I think that's an Ian thing. Myra was so obsessed with him. Yeah. But supposedly, you know, they're very open. Oh. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had this us versus the world mentality. Don't they always? They do. So Ian starts asking weird questions because Ian is Ian. Like, if she had any enemies that... Sorry. Ian asked weird questions like asking if she had any kind of enemies because he believed everyone had an enemy they wanted to see die. And if you didn't, you were lying. I don't. I don't either. So when he asked Myra who her enemy was, she said Ronnie Sinclair, her ex-fiance, who did nothing wrong. What did Ronnie do? Nothing. So she said she wanted him to be humiliated before he died, and she wanted to watch. Poor Ronnie. She wanted him to know he was going to die and be terrified. So they went to Saddleworth Moor to plan this. Ian started following Ronnie around. Followed him to work, got his routine, everything. Um, So Ronnie's just chilling at the pub. Ian comes in. Ronnie doesn't have a clue who he is. But Ian just sits right next to him, starts chatting him up. And of course, Ian knows who he is. He's, he's yeah. been stalking him. Stalker. Yeah. So they're just shooting the shit. Eventually, Ian says something, and Ronnie makes the realization that this is Myra's new man. Mm. Don't know what it was, but something clicked. So Ian starts bragging about breaking into homes and stealing and making money. Uh, he asked Ronnie if he wanted to be a part of his jobs and steal house like steal burglarized with him and ronnie was like nope ronnie's not into it he's like no i'm not into that whatever ian pulls out a photo and he said are you into this it's a young girl ronnie said he thought was about 13 Mm. naked bound and gagged Mm. ronnie says no not into that ian says he took pictures of the girl and the girl agreed so it's fine is it though and she's fine he didn't hurt her. She's fine. Okay. According to Ian. According to Ian. Ronnie shuts him down, as Ronnie should. Um, 
but Ian asked him if he knows any girls that would be willing to pose for him. His preference was 16 to 20 years old, but he was flexible. Ew. And Ronnie just took this all as like, this is a very weird experience. I'm leaving. I'd leave too. So. I would leave too. Somehow he managed to get out, and for whatever reason, Ian and Myron never went through with killing him. Well, now I feel good for Ronnie. Like, go Ronnie. I know. Like, they just moved on for Like, moved on. Like, they got bored. Oh, I mean, Ronnie was such a good apple. I can see I how they would get bored of just following him around. Mm-hmm. So, early 1963, Ian told Myra that he wanted to plan a bank robbery. He needed her to get a, be his getaway driver. So, immediately, she got driving lessons because she didn't have a license. So, she had to get a license. She joined a rifle club and purchased two guns. Oh. For whatever reason, Ian never went through with the robbery either. But now Myra's got all these fancy new toys. Mm -hmm. Personally, I don't think he was ever planning on killing Ronnie or robbing a bank. I think it was a test to see how far Myra would go. You know, that makes a lot of sense. because That's kind of my theory. Yeah. Because he never really robbed anything once he like wasn't a teenager. Mm -hmm. So I think it was all just a test. Which Myra, which depending on your perspective of life, passed. <laughs> Myra need, needed to sit down and really think about what she was yeah. doing. Yeah, I agree. So, she was very willing. Uh, so, he didn't go through with that. So, Anne's fantasies about bank robberies and making money quickly changed to him talking to her about child abuse and murder. Oh. In July 1963... They start talking about what the perfect, the quote-unquote perfect murder would be on, like, their date nights. And somehow they came to, let's murder some children. Yeah, just murder in general, you know, but it's children. So their date nights would turn into drinking cheap wine, experimenting with their weird sexual sadism things they did. Cute. And driving through the countryside in the moors in their minivan. I feel like to each their own. Yeah. Uh, not this own, but, you know. <laughs> Try to be a little less psychotic. Yeah. Yeah. So they would go to the moors for their dates and plan their crimes. They started preparing and practicing, and their dates turned into practice on how to get rid of bodies. How do you practice that? I'm glad you asked. That's my next <laughs> sentence. <laughs> so Ian would tell Myra to go limp so he could practice carrying her. And practice, you know, carrying her to a grave and burying her and all those things and he also taught taught her how to just turn her emotions off and flip a switch which i've never carried a dead body would you say that carrying a dead body is the same as a live person going limp as a funeral director i can say that carrying a dead body is nothing like <laughs> carrying a live body that's just gone limp mm -hmm. I, I had that hunch yeah no experience but a hunch a good hunch yeah so as i said before ian was very meticulous he did not want to get caught oh ian 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 was meticulous and detail oriented he had rules that him and myra had to do what okay. were the rules he said the victim had to be completely at random not even like a pinch of any info that could connect it couldn't be someone you knew that you knew 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 down the line like yeah. completely at random okay um he said they had to get rid of everything tire prints shoe prints fibers everything had to be gone 
they would have to bring a set of duplicate clothes af- for them to wear after the murder. Because they were going to burn the clothes that they were wore during the murder. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He would do things like count all the buttons on their clothes. That way he knew at the end, if a button was missing, it was at the crime scene. He had to go get it. He's very thorough and I hate it. I hate it too. <laughs> like, I understand being thorough, but yeah. dang, boy. Yeah. They were not allowed to take any trophies. That's probably best. Mm-hmm. They also had to make sure they had alibis and proof of an alibi. And they would have to get receipts or see someone something. And they had to be able to remember every detail of that alibi for 14 days. That way, if they were questioned about it, they could remember those details. That was the arbitrary number he came up with was 14 days. Ian, I would not be able to be your Myra because I can't remember most things that happened 15 (laughs) minutes ago. I know. He had a very detailed checklist for after the murders. They'd get rid of any evidence. The second the murder was done, they would meticulously clean the car. They would not wait till the next day. It had to be done right then and there. He knew what he was about. He knew. Um, He also had suitcases that he kept at the Manchester Central Station in the lost luggage, luggage section. Where he would hide any evidence he wanted to hide. So if by chance there was evidence, he would hide it there so it wasn't in their home. I mean, that's kind of smart. Yeah, but I don't want to give him credit. (laughs) I'll give him a little bit of credit. I mean, the luggage was locked. No one could get in. Um, All the cars that they would use would have false plates. Every murder weapon would be immediately destroyed and not used again. Um, They would even bring a new shovel. For every crime. That's a lot of shovels. Did th- yeah, like, they nobody, would just, like, bury it somewhere. Nobody was like, man, they really buy a lot of shovels. <laughs> if I like, went to, Lowe's wasn't asking questions. Yeah, if I went to the hardware store and bought a shovel <laughs> more than once in a week, mm-hmm. somebody would be like, hey, man, what are you doing with the shovel? Yep. He Dang. also had a plan that if they ever got caught. Oh. Which, he would never get caught, because he's Ian. But Myra would get caught, because she's Myra. Well, he doesn't give a shit about Myra. Exactly. (laughs) No, he knew that they were either never going to get caught because they were geniuses. Obviously. They would either die in a police shootout or they would have some kind of murder-suicide pact. So, in his mind, they were never going to jail. At least he wasn't going back to jail. At least he was. Yeah. He also had some kind of rule that he could never harm a fellow Scott person. No one from Scotland he could do. Weird. Because I think it's, like, a Scottish thing. Like, you can't harm, like, your brother, your brother-in. I don't know enough about Scots, but I have a friend who I can ask about it. (laughs) Because apparently they would make visits to his home in Scotland sometimes, and Myra would be like, hey, what about that kid? He's like, nope, not happening. No Scots. No. That was a rule he had. Weird. And he also knew they would dispose of all the bodies in the moors. Because it was just vast open land, you'd never find them. That is 29 square miles. <laughs> Point four. I'm sorry. 29.4 <laughs> square miles. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so when Ian felt confident in Myra's loyalty, because I'm not sure. At what point? At what point? Yeah. He finally figured it out. And they had the perfect plan. They just needed the perfect victim. He didn't have a preference for a boy or a girl. He just wanted them young. Which is sick. Ew. Yeah. Mm. I almost threw up. Mm. 
Um, so yeah, they were bisexual. They didn't care. And I'm not saying that as for bisexual people. That was literally just what they said. I was going to say, I didn't know my bisexuality also carried into murders. But no, This was I not a threat on bisexual people. This is just what Myra and Ian said. <laughs> this is, in fact, a threat. This, Sorry. <laughs> so the plan was that they, Myra was going to drive around in the van, and Ian was going to follow on his motorcycle. Whenever he would, like, see someone he liked, he'd flash his lights at her for her to go track the kid down mm-hmm. and kind of lure them into the van. That was the plan. At least they had a plan. They had a plan. Whatever. Um, so, at first he sees this little girl and he flashes the lights. He's like, I like that one. Myra just kept driving. Oh, because she was a babysitter. Well, she knew this kid. Oh, shoot. I lost the name. Oh, well, she was a little girl. She was, like, eight years old. And she knew her. Like, through the grapevine in the small town. It was, like, a neighbor or something. And she was like, I can't get that child. Because Ian's pulled her over and said, hey, I wanted that one. Why didn't you get her? And Myra said, I know her, so I can't get her. And two, she's too young. She would make more news than an older kid. Yeah. That checks out. But that's so sick. She's like, they're, she's too young. I mean. Which I'm glad she didn't get her. I mean, I mean, I'm, I am glad she didn't get her. But it's a, someone's going to go missing. People are going to talk about it. Yeah, no matter what their age is. Yeah, but she thought a little kid. She, she's like eight. She thought eight would be too young. What was their youngest victim? I think around 10 to 12 was around uh, their youngest ones. Oh, 10's not too young, but 8's too <sighs> young. Yeah, but this was also the first one. That's fair. Okay. Yeah, so she was like a little more, I think, standoffish about it. So, so this is their first night they went hunting. And this was on July 12th, 1963, by the way. So they had their plan. The first one didn't work out. So they keep driving around. Um... Oh, I forgot to tell you. They had an alibi worked out before they went hunting for a child. Oh. Ian's grand plan, because they lived separately. He lived with his parents' house. She still lived with her grandmother. Mm-hmm. He was home, and he asked his parents what the time was on the clock, because he thought it was broken. So his parents were able to say, Ian was home at this time, because I saw the clock. That's smart. Like, I never would have thought of that. I wouldn't have either. Like... I hate to give him credit, but goddamn. This is why I wouldn't be able to be a murderer, because yeah, I just wouldn't get away with it. Yeah. Like It's just like a little detail that you would never think anything about. So next time anyone asks me for the time, I want to assume they're a murderer. Same. Yeah. <sighs> Goodness gracious. So they went hunting again, um, and she pulled off on this road, and she just decides to park and wait. That's when they saw Pauline Reed walking down the road. She was on her way to the local dance, which was about 10 minutes away. We talked about her in the beginning. She had begged her mother to let her walk. Her mother was reluctant, as a mother would be. But she was 16. She decided she'd let her go. The whole thing. Yeah. And apparently, like, her friends were going to go, but then her friends weren't allowed to go. But she wanted to still go by herself. So and she I, walked. And I could understand a 16-year-old yeah. walking somewhere by themselves. Yeah, it was just a 10-minute walk. Yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, her mother helped her get ready. She kissed her on the cheek. She said, bye, bye to mom. 
Bye, Mom. At, like, 7.45. That was the last time our moms are. Um, I keep losing my spot. It's making me very frustrated. So, as she was walking, one of her friends actually saw her. And it was one of the friends that was no longer allowed to go to the dance. Mm -hmm. But she was on her way to the dance. Like, I guess her mom changed her mind. Oh, okay. So, she saw Pauline walking. So, she's like, oh... I'm going to stop and say hi to Pauline and play it off like I'm still not allowed to go. And then I'm going to surprise her at the dance and be like, oh, look, I'm here. We can have fun. So she played it off like she couldn't go. And she made it to the dance and she waited for Pauline. And Pauline never showed. Oh, no. That poor girl. They could have walked together and it would have probably been safe. I know. Or she could have gave her a ride. That too, yeah. (laughs) But no, she thought she was going to be like this big surprise. What a weird surprise. I know, but I mean, they were like 16. So she's like, oh, I want to surprise her. I guess so. Poor thing. She probably feels really bad. The guilt she probably has. Is she even still alive? Probably has. Probably. Uh, I mean, it's the 60s. Yeah. She's probably still alive. I'd say she's older. Yeah. Like 70s. Yeah, maybe. 70s, 80s. Oh, well. Anyway. We're not going to dwell on that. No. (laughs) So, Pauline never showed. So, Myra pulled up to Pauline. She offered a ride to Pauline, um, which Pauline accepted. She got in the van, and Myra offered to play some pop music. um, And she was going to give her some pop music records if Pauline would help Myra. See, Myra lost this very special glove. And she lost it in the moors. And this she glove would have. This glove meant so much to her that she needed Pauline to help her. So Pauline agreed. Pauline, mm-hmm. you had places to go. You got places to be. You wore a dress and everything. You wore heels. Pauline. So, um, so Myra and Pauline dre- they drove to the moors. They pull over at like some pullover spot. Um, Ian's there. Shock. Wow. Ian's there. Uh, Myra introduced Ian as her boyfriend to Pauline. Ian immediately thought Pauline was very pretty. Ian was interested. And the three of them go to look for this great glove. Ian had already picked out a spot where they everything would happen. Everything would go down. He had gone there earlier to kind of hide the shovel and hide whatever he needed. Mm-hmm. So it was all there waiting for her. And she had no idea. <sighs> Pauline. So, I know. Ian signaled Myra he would use this weird eyebrow raise type of thing. I guess they had a code. Um, and that was their way of, like, agreeing. It was time to attack Pauline. So he attacked Pauline from behind in a stranglehold, took her to the ground. They basically told her, don't scream. It would be pointless. I mean, no one around. they were in 29.4 square miles of land. I'm really so. glad you did not forget the point four. I... Doing my best here. (laughs) Um, So Ian said during his confession that immediately Pauline looked at Myra. She begged her to stop Ian. Myra smiled and yelled at her to be quiet. Myra wasn't going to stop Ian. No. Ian also said that Pauline told Myra that she was quote unquote unwell. Which Ian had no idea what that meant. But she was on her period. Myra had to tell Ian that she was on her period. Oh. Because, you know, as a sweet little 16-year-old, she's like, oh, they won't bother me. If I tell them I'm mm-hmm. bleeding. Ian didn't care. Ian wouldn't care. No. This might be 
we're now getting to the nitty gritty here. So trigger warning for our listeners. So Myra held her down, undressed her. Myra and Ian raped her together. When they were done, they let her get dressed. And she went to put on, her mother gave her a locket right before she left. Mm-hmm. And it was like very special to her. Uh, Pauline went to put the necklace on and Myra took it from her. And she said, you won't need that where you're going. Which pissed Ian off. Because he did not want any of their victims to know what was coming. And by Myra telling her that, she was basically saying you're dying. Which Ian was pissed. Ian, Myra, ugh. So he just slaps the shit out of Myra. Just bam! Mm. And Myra was pissed. I mean, I would be too if somebody just slapped me across the face. Yep. And here's a twist for you. Because she was pissed. She looked at Ian and said, that's Pauline Reed. Keep in mind, Ian thought this was a stranger. Oh, that's right. Because mm-hmm. they were supposed to be random and... Yep, he had no idea that Myra knew who this ch- this girl was. So come to find out, Myra just spilled the means that she knew who Pauline Reed was. Why? why... Mistakes. <laughs> so that's why Pauline trusted Myra. She got in the car with her because she knew her. She went to the Moors because she knew her. It wasn't a stranger. The trust was broken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Pauline, she was raised in the Catholic community. She w- went to school with Myra's little sister, Maureen. So she knew Myra. They hung out several times. Myra's father went to the pub with Pauline's father. They all knew each other. Ian didn't know. Ian wasn't supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Pauline felt completely comfortable with being with Myra. That's why she is begging for Myra to help her. That all checks out. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense now. But Ian didn't know. So you want to know why they, she didn't pick up the little girl? But they picked up Pauline? Why? Because apparently what had happened. Previously, Ian was taking pictures of Myra's sister, Maureen. And Ian made it very clear to Myra that he thought Maureen was the prettier sister. Oh. And he flirted with Maureen, made Myra very jealous. Maureen had a boyfriend. His name was David Smith. Remember the name David Smith. It will come up later. He's very important. But that's Maureen's uh, boyfriend. So she's already jealous of Maureen. Myra sees David out and about with Pauline Reed. Not doing any... Literally, they just knew each other. Nothing was happening. Oh, okay. But to Myra, he was with a girl. So this was like her revenge Mm -hmm. for... Okay. So Ian's pissed. Because to him, Myra just used Ian. Myra used him to get revenge. And you don't use Ian. Ian only uses you. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So he's pissed. But he goes and he's like, well, I was going to kill this girl anyway. Now I have to. We're already here. You might We're already as well. here. So now he's pissed about it. So this perfect murder, this whole grand thing just went out the window. Now he's just like, I just got to get shit done. Yeah. So he goes to the van, gets whatever he needs. According to Ian, Ian and Myra's stories conflict a lot. They never line up. 
Oh, no. And I'll let you figure out which one you believe. So Ian claims when he came back, Myra was on top of Pauline, and Myra was screaming for Ian to hurry up and help her. Myra had stabbed Pauline in the chest. The knife was dull and it broke. Um, so she stabbed her, the knife broke, she's covered in blood, she's beating the shit up out of Pauline. Yeah. Nothing's working. So Ian has to basically come finish the job. Okay. He had a different knife, he slashed her throat. That didn't work, he had to do it again. Almost decapitated the poor girl. But he killed her. Um, according to Ian, Ian and Myra dug the grave, they put the body in. They were careful to make sure the dirt of the grave didn't look too disturbed. That way it didn't stand out. Like, they grabbed grass mm-hmm. and, like, put it on top to, like, make it look like it had been there a while. And they tried to make it look that way. Um, they counted their steps back to the van so they knew exactly where the grave was so they could come back and visit. Why would they want to come back and visit? Oh, you just wait. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they burned the clothes, destroyed the knife, cleaned the van, just like the plan was supposed to go uh myra spilt the ble- spilt the beans that she had the necklace that pauline had she also took some money from pauline so they just buried the money with somewhere and they buried the necklace somewhere no one's ever found the necklace but ian was pissed because she ruined it so much i mean she didn't follow the rules so mm-hmm. i get that i i understand ian mm-hmm. um after this they went home, they watched a movie, they drank a bottle of wine, they had sex, and they went to sleep. As you do after As you one murder does. one. Uh, Myra claims that she was in the van. She doesn't know what happened to Pauline. Oh. Mm-hmm. She also claimed that she only agreed to do one murder with Ian because that's what he wanted and he, she wanted to make him happy and if she changed her mind or turned him in he according to Myra Ian said she would end up in the same grave as Pauline so that's why she's got a rally of people behind her saying mm-hmm. that she's innocent I don't know I don't I don't think she's innocent how do you just yep let it go mm-hmm mm. mm-hmm that's a common theme. She's never around. She never hears anything. She never sees anything. Ian's always like, yeah, she was involved and very much wanted to be there. I would probably believe Ian. Mm-hmm. Ian's got no reason to lie. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to believe Ian, but I feel like with this we can. Yeah. I kind of feel like that. So. So the next day, the police start searching. They look everywhere. They have no idea where Pauline went. There's no connections to her. Nothing. Um, her poor mother, like, she would search for this girl. Like, she'd go to different towns, mm-hmm. everything. She even became, like, an Avon sales rep. Because yeah. they would go door to door and sell it to people. And she would go just so she could, like, see if Pauline was at the house. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That's some um, intense yeah. and extra investigating. Mm-hmm. She was just a poor mama. Yeah. So, Pauline's mother said everything... Sorry. Oh, so Pauline basically said, you know, when everything came to light, um, she never even would think to question Myra. Like, why would you even think Myra had anything to do with it? 
Myra even went up to her and said that she was sorry about what happened to Pauline. Myra. Mm-hmm. Yep. Her poor mom just ended up having a complete mental breakdown. She had to basically spend a lot of her life in a facility after all this happened. I can understand that. Because also remember, Pauline wasn't found for over like 20 years. Oh, that's right. Mm. Yeah. So, after this murder, Ian gave Myra a record. And this kind of sparked some kind of sick tradition for them. Mm-hmm. It was, this record was the theme song for a movie called The Legion's Last Patrol, which was something in the UK. He gave her this record as basically the perfect murder anniversary gift. This was like their theme song. And they would sing the song if they wanted to like remember and like reminisce. Was it really their perfect murder though? She ruined it? But you know. Yeah. The concept. The concept of it. I get it. So this kind of sparked a new tradition. Every time they'd kill... You get a record. It was, you know, Ian's sweet little present to Myra. Ew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they would just sing whatever the song was when they wanted to remember. But, like, no one would know. So it was, like, their sick, twisted joke. That's, that they would sing it in public or whatever, and no one knew. That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. They were just sick. <sighs> oh, sweet little tidbit. So after the murder of Pauline, Myra was trying to sell the van. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, different cars, different whatever. A cop wanted to buy it. Oh. Ian thought this was hilarious. So he was going along with it. How funny would a cop... How funny would it be if a cop got the murder vehicle? Not very. To Ian, it was hilarious. So, the cop told Myra he couldn't spend a lot of money because he was on duty or whatever his excuse was. So he offered to take her on a date. Oh. Mm-hmm. And he would give her the money then. Ian thought this was even more funny. <laughs> but little did he know that Myra actually started a legit affair with the cop. Well, good for Myra. And she wanted to actually become a cop. Which Ian thought was great because he could have an inside scoop. Mm-hmm. He had no idea that they were fucking. Oh. But then he found out and he was not happy. Now, keep in mind, they were supposed to have an open relationship and all those things. Yeah. But, you know, that didn't work for Myra. I just thought that was a funny tidbit. It's a nice little tidbit. A little tidbit of info. So then the time comes to kill again. Ian tells Myra they he wants a child this time because Pauline fought too much. Hate that. Mm-hmm. So November 23rd, 1963, Myra went to some market called Ashton Underland Underland I think is how you say it um, it's basically a big market on the weekends vendors set up the whole thing it's a lot of people and she knew that there would be some unattended kid and they could kind of go through unnoticed because there's so many people hate that she's right so is it like the reading terminal market have you ever been to that no but I imagine it's the same it's hectic lots of people everywhere mm-hmm, that's how it was so Myra wore a disguise. She wore a black wig, headscarf, sunglasses. Because no one was going to see Myra. Uh, she went to the store with her disguise, and they bought a shovel, knife, and cord. Because, you know, you have to get new stuff. Oh, that's right. Every time. She went to the movies with Ian to secure her alibi. Because you have to have an alibi. And then they went to the market. Ian instantly saw his next victim. Oh, that was fast. Yep. He saw a young boy alone and knew that's who he wanted. He told Myra they 
would go around the market, pretend they were just a normal couple shopping, and they didn't wouldn't look suspicious. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he was right. Damn it, Ian. Mm-hmm. They found John Kilbride. He was 12 years old. Uh, 12-year-old John, he had went to the movies with his buddies. They finished around 5, went to the market to see if they could earn some money by helping the vendors set up or take down their things. Mm-hmm. Um, his buddy had to leave him, like we talked about in the beginning. And last he saw John Kilbride, he was standing by the trash cans near one of the vendors. That was the last time he ever saw his friend again. Oh, I know. The last thing he was seen wearing was a jacket with soccer buttons pinned to it. And that's just so childlike that to me. That is so childlike. And, like, it just hurts my heart. Oh. <laughs> so Myra and Ian started talking to John when he was alone, and they were telling him that his parents must be so worried because it's so late. It's 5 o'clock. It's not that late. It's not that. I mean, unless it's the wintertime. But he... You know, they were telling him that, you know, they were also parents, and they'd be worried sick if their kids didn't come home at five. That's fair. So, basically, they kind of play it off as, your parents must be so worried. So, then John gets worried. So, they're like, oh, we'll give you a ride home. Which John's like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble. Because, remember, he's the one I said in the beginning was a sweet angel baby. Yeah. So, he didn't want to get in trouble. So, he's like, yeah, I'll go home with you guys. Or you guys take me home, I mean. Um, so they get in the car, and they basically said, hey, Myra has this really special glove. And if you help us find this glove in the moors, we'll give you a bottle of sherry so you can give it to your parents. So not only are you getting home at a good time, you have a gift, mm-hmm. and you help someone out. Myra didn't legitimately lose a glove. No. I swear to God. There was no glove. There never is a glove, is there? No. Just like it's always at Ian. Uh, so john's like okay i'm gonna be helpful so he went so they stop at the find this great glove at the moors and ian said that at some point john started to feel like something was off and Mm -hmm. ian could tell he was nervous yeah makes me so sad (laughs) i mean it was a legitimate feeling yeah ian well myra said that she watched ian and john walk off into the moors and she drove around 30 minutes later she comes back ian comes back to the car out of breath holding john shoe she said that when she asked ian what the shoe was about he said that basically he buried john and afterwards he found the shoe so he has to get rid of the shoe must have fallen off at some point whatever ian told myra he sexually assaulted john tried to slit his throat but the knife was too dull so he used the cord to strangle him uh yeah ian claims that myra was there the whole time myra probably was there the Mm -hmm. whole time she claim he claims they did their weird eyebrow signal he attacked the two of them tackled john to the ground and ian proceeded to do everything he did to him while myra held him down that hurts Mm mm-hmm sweet little angel baby i know Ian also said that after John was dead, Ian just shook his fist at the sky and yelled, Take that, you bastard. I thought Ian didn't believe in God. I think it was like a royal fuck you. Mm. But I don't really know. But he was very proud of that. For whatever ungodly reason. 
I wrote because <laughs> in my notes I wrote because Ian is weird and theatrical and just a thorn in the universe ass. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> I must have been feeling very sassy that day. Afterward, they did the same thing. They cleaned up the mess, just like they did with Pauline. They had sex. They drank wine. The whole thing. Call it a night. Call it a night. Uh, when John didn't show for dinner, his parents, Sheila and Patrick, called the police. Uh, because John was never late. His little brother went door to door looking for him. Police conducted a search where, thousand of pe- where thousands of people showed up to find him. Uh, this little boy was so well loved. Even the principal every morning during the announcements would make some kind of statement for him. Because he, everybody wanted to find John. Nothing was found. Ian and Myra went to work the following Monday, and the whole office was talking about it. Ian thought that was great. He got a kick off of it. Ian's the worst. Ian's the worst. Myra's not great either. But Ian, no, Ian's the Ian's worst. The worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, word gets out that they're expanding the search into the moors. Myra's freaking out. Ian's calm as a cucumber because he thinks that the police don't have anything to connect John to the moors. They probably don't. They don't. So, he's like, it's fine. They're just doing it just to do it. The search party forms over 2,000 people. It's the largest volunteer search party to ever form there. Oh. Nothing was found. Mm. Ian got a record for Myra to commemorate this one. It was called 24 Hours from Tulsa by Jane Pitney. Don't ask me what the connection is. I couldn't tell you. Hate that. Mm-hmm. Hey y'all, it's Kayla just hopping in at the end of the episode to say thank you for making it this far. We have been working so hard on this podcast and we greatly, greatly appreciate it. And we wanted to say thank you and we love you for it. Also, just remember to give us a rating, give us a review, share if you can. And make sure you find us on all of our social media platforms. I will post all of those links all those handles in our description box. But you can find us on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. Make sure you find us on YouTube for some special future content. Oh, and uh, Pinterest. Because who doesn't love Pinterest? Anyway, thank you so, so much for making it this far. And just for you, here's a little sneak peek of next week's episode. Bye! Also, um... They have a dog. Oh, they have a dog. Mm-hmm. Oh. Poppet. He's like a little terrier mix thingy. I love it. So he ta- they take Poppet to the moors, like how you would just see a normal couple with their dog. And, mm-hmm. like, they take pictures and do all the things. They pose with Poppet at the graves. That's horrible. That's disgusting. Yeah, they take pictures. Poor Poppet. Poor Poppet. He didn't doesn't know, know what he's He didn't doing. know. 